Crypto Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. Eco Report is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Hello and welcome to Eco Report for WFHB I'm Cade Young. And I'm Cynthia Roberts. Later in today's news feature, environmental correspondent Zero Rose asks local eco-architect and sustainability pioneer Bill Brown about the environmental considerations involved in constructing energy-efficient public libraries that Brown designed for two communities in Indiana. And now for your environmental reports. In an IU news release, the university announced a new program to build on its legacy of helping its students and alumni contribute to efforts to find solutions to pressing global challenges. The Indiana University Kelly School of Business is establishing the Institute for Environmental and Social Sustainability. Nearly 45 professors representing every department at the Kelly School in Bloomington and Indianapolis are actively engaged in research involving environmental and social sustainability. The Institute will enable the school to better support and broaden these activities while also offering new courses and educational opportunities for students. Quote, many companies are increasingly addressing environmental and sustainability issues to better understand the impact of their activity on people and society, end quote said Ash Sony, dean of the Kelly School. The faculty has been engaged in these issues for a while, and this institute will help us to be better positioned to make a difference. For example, enrollment in an undergraduate course on sustainability law and policy has tripled since 2017. New courses in climate law and policy are now offered. Another course on business and poverty alleviation have been introduced in recent years, and more new courses are under development. Kelly also offers a co-major in sustainable business at the undergraduate level. Thus far, the state government has not interfered with this program. Earlier this year, the attorney general filed suit to prevent investment of state pension funds into accounts that value social or environmental responsibility. Inside Climate Change reports Congress is once again fighting over the nation's debt ceiling, the legal limit on how much the United States can borrow. It's a highly politicized battle that has threatened to paralyze the federal government almost every year for the past decade with potentially significant long-term consequences for the U.S. economy. Now, Republicans want to use it to repeal President Joe Biden's climate agenda. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, who has become beholden to a handful of far-right GOP lawmakers, is on a quest to slash federal spending. The California Republican reluctantly agreed to raise the nation's debt ceiling by $1.5 trillion for about a year, but not without demanding major concessions from Democrats. 
McCarthy's bill called the Limit, Save, Grow Act of 2023 would slash more than $4.5 trillion from future federal spending by limiting discretionary funds, eliminating Biden's student loan forgiveness plan, and cutting financial commitments meant to revamp the Internal Revenue Service in order to prevent audits of the tax forms of the ultra-rich. It is also it also targets the foundational provisions of the Inflation Reduction Act, the Democrats' marquee climate law that passed last year. That bill dedicates around $370 billion to fighting climate change, largely through tax rebates and other government credits that incentivize consumers and businesses to adopt clean energy technologies and electric vehicles. McCarthy's proposal would repeal the vast majority of those. They include the tax credits for the electric vehicles, clean hydrogen, sustainable aviation fuel, and even the credits that would reward energy providers for building more solar and wind power systems, even more so if they build them in low-income neighborhoods. Basically, McCarthy wants to say climate change is no threat to life on Earth. McCarthy also slipped the Republicans' energy plan, known as H.R. 1, into his debt ceiling bill. That measure, which passed the House mostly along party lines last month, would speed up the federal approval of energy projects, bolster domestic oil and gas production, and limit the ability of states to reject energy projects. The Limit Save Grow Act, quote, would end the green giveaways for companies that distort the market and waste taxpayer money, end quote, McCarthy said, speaking from the House floor on Wednesday. Goldman Sachs says the savings from ending these green giveaways are as much as $1.2 trillion. What McCarthy essentially prefers is to leave the cost of much of Florida and many other places going underwater to future generations. Despite protests from the state of Texas, The federal government has listed as endangered a rare milkweed plant that monarch butterflies thrive on and is designating miles of critical habitat on the South Texas border that could affect future state border wall development. The prostrate milkweed only grows within nine miles of the border in the United States. The plant is integral to the survival of monarch butterflies. In July, the monarchs were listed as threatened species. Monarch butterflies migrate to this area across the Rio Grande Valley between Mexico and the United States every year. So listing the the prostrate milkweed on the endangered species list was the right decision. In the spring, female monarchs will migrate north across the borderlands, and they have to find milkweed to lay eggs on where they die. The prostrate milkweeds are the first species that they'll come across, The female can lay their eggs on the milkweed and then they die. The new butterflies that emerge from this will continue the migration to points further north. So these are really critically important flowers and make the entire butterfly migration process possible. Those pesky squirrels, how do they do it? They can, uh, how can they possibly get to your bird feeder when you have a baffle to keep them out? Squirrels can sprint along fences, skitter up, down, and around tree trunks, and pull off awe-inspiring feats of agility, like getting into your bird feeder. Their anatomy is specialized for treetop antics. They have hyper-flexible back ankles that can rotate a full 180 degrees. Plus, they have curved claws. 
So by reversing their ankles, they can dig their back claws into a tree spark even while descending headfirst. It's a rare talent. House cats, which are in the same genus, can't twist their ankles. That's why cats can't back down a tree. Squirrels' legs are also strong. They can leap more than six feet. The average squirrel is under a foot long, yet they can leap over six times the length of their body. Squirrels also learn by trial and error. They will keep trying over and over until they figure it out. That's why they finally figure out how to get into your bird feeder, no matter what you do. The Environmental Protection Agency, as soon as this week, is expected to unveil standards for new and existing power plants, which belch roughly a quarter of U.S. greenhouse gas emissions, two sources said. The the rules will replace former President Donald Trump's American Clean Energy Rule and former President Barack Obama's Clean Power Plan, both of which are invalidated by the courts. More than a year in the making, the standard should be based on a plant's potential to reduce emissions through carbon capture and storage technology, according to clean air law experts and industry representatives in talks with the EPA. Utility companies may need to decide whether they want to build new gas plants with carbon capture technology or zero-emission renewable energy. States would develop plans for bringing their plants into compliance. Most new gas plants currently do not pay for emitting carbon, so the rules could make it harder for them to compete with solar and wind power. Gas plus carbon capture would always be more expensive than solar, or wind. Biden has pledged that the power business will decarbonize by 2023. According to the Clean Air Act, the standards must be based on, quote, the best system of emission reduction technologies deemed affordable and technically feasible. The proposal will reflect two major developments to ensure the rules are legally defensible. One, a Supreme Court decision last July barred the EPA from forcing a system-wide shift in electric generation, but allowed it to issue plant-specific rules. Second, the Inflation Reduction Act created tax credits, making carbon capture and hydrogen more affordable and affirmed the EPA's authority to regulate power plants. The law officers more my apologies, the law offers more than $100 billion in clean electricity tax incentives, including a 70% increase in credits for each ton of carbon captured and sequestered. This program is in the Inflation Reduction Act because the fossil fuel industries see it as a way to continue burning fossil fuels. If you're building a new fossil plant, it needs to control its emissions, said Lisa Lynch, director of the Federal Legal Group at the Natural Resources Defense Council. Existing technology can capture and store approximately 90% of carbon emissions, said Lynch. And now we go to Zero Rose and the first part of an interview with Bill Brown of IU's Environmental Resilience Institute on how he harnessed social capital, federal funds, and the energy of the sun to create America's first certified energy positive public library right here in Indiana.
is Assistant Director for Strategy and Engagement for IU's Environmental Resilience Institute. He was hired to be the first Director of Sustainability at IU in 2009, and he helped the university achieve a STARS Gold Rating in 2018. Bill was elected to the National Board of the Association for the Advancement of Sustainability in Higher Education in 2012. He is the former chair of the Indiana chapter of the U.S. Green Building Council, and he taught graduate courses in the IU O'Neill School of Public and Environmental Affairs and J. Irwin Miller Architecture Program. Uh, Bill is a graduate of the Indiana University of Indiana University and the and Ball State University's R. Wayne Estopanel College of Architecture and Planning, and he and his wife, Dr. Linda Brown, are restoring a solar-powered Griffey Creek Farm north of Bloomington. Thank you for being with us today, Bill. My pleasure. And further, Bill was a member of the AIA National uh, Committee on the Environment and a participant in the greening of the White House in 1992 to 94. His architectural profile or portfolio includes dozens of public schools and libraries, including the first certified energy positive public library in America, built in Christney, Indiana in 2009. And he's the recipient of two AIA national presidential citations. So uh, uh, why don't we start with that uh, energy positive um, library in Christie, Indiana. Um, uh, why don't you kind of uh, explain that term for our viewers, what, what you mean by uh, energy positive? Well, an energy positive building is, is one that produces more energy than it uses on site. And um, that is a very interesting story of a uh, very small community in Christney, had a population of around 500 people. And uh, somehow they were able to get funding for a feasibility study for their library. And we got that contract and I went to Christney. And um, when I showed up there, they had a huge crowd of people. It was about a quarter of the population of Christney showed up at the feasibility study meeting, which I'd never seen that anywhere else before. But I asked a few questions. I said, do you have any money? No. Um, do you have a site? No. Do you have a storefront that you're going to convert into a library? No. Uh, but you've got permission from the library district to do a branch library. No, they said no. <laughs> no. Uh, I thought that was going to be the shortest feasibility study in history. But um, a room full of people like that meant that they had extreme amount of social capital. And um, that's something you can always work with. And so the journey began to try to figure out how to solve that problem. And um, one of the first idea was to use the elementary school media center uh, put another outside door on it and call it a branch library and, and allow townspeople to use it. The school corporation said no, that was a uh, violation of security. So, um, but they eventually said we would donate an acre of land for the library. And then went back to the uh, library district and said, would you consent to having a library branch in Christney if we could find a way to pay for it? And uh, they said, no, we just, they just couldn't afford to upkeep and uh, all that. 
So the original strategy there was really unique where we said, what if we got you a free library building paid for by federal grant money and it didn't have any utility bills because we would power it by solar power. And uh, they said, well, that would be interesting. We're, we're interested in how that would work. So they were able to get a federal grant for their library and that included the solar power as a geothermal heating and cooling a very well insulated building and uh, 10 years later they still haven't paid a utility bill and they have a library and it's part of the uh, lincoln heritage library district so that was the town of christney the school corporation and the library district collaborating to pull that miracle off so that that's one of my favorite uh, sustainable design stories because it also talks about the importance of community capacity and how that social capital is so important. And so that was, was that a from the ground up fresh building then? Yes, that was a new building on a, again, an acre next to the school. And uh, just behind the library is the outdoor learning lab for the elementary school. And the, the solar panels for that project actually went on what is essentially a shelter house, an outdoor structure that allows people to meet under the solar panels and including the students. Uh, so it is a multi-use outdoor facility that is next to the library. And uh, was building from scratch, did that allow you to uh, make it a lot more efficient? Well, there is a trade-off there. A new building can be built to be very efficient, uh, but you're also, uh, using a lot of embodied carbon and you know if they had an existing storefront that they could convert into a branch that would be even more efficient uh, because the embodied carbon that's in the materials of the building that's existing so an existing building is always a greener building than a new building no matter how energy efficient the new building is yeah with the adaptive reuse yes. being first option if at all possible uh, were there any innovative materials involved in that um, well, that's another interesting story in that we originally designed it to be made of insulated concrete forms, uh, which is a, you know, uh, looks like Lego blocks and you pour the concrete in the middle and it's very strong, but it's also very well insulated. You have the thermal mass of the concrete. So um, that's what we originally designed. And then um, when we bid it, it's a public project. The local contractors did not know how to work with that material. so. Uh, we actually redesigned it to be stick built with uh, conventional wood frame construction. And uh, that was a little bit unconventional because we used a two by six stick frame with uh, 24 inch on centers. And then we had a, uh, an inch of insulation on the outside of that frame to bring it up to uh, a pretty high uh, efficiency level. I think the EUI of that project was like 14 or 15, which a, a typical library would typically be five to six times that much uh, energy use per square foot. That's what the EUI is, is energy use. Energy use intensity. Yes, it's a, a measure of the efficiency of a building. And you can look at the EUIs of typical types of buildings like libraries or schools, and then you can uh, use that as a benchmark for your own project. So was that a bit of a trade-off from what you were originally trying to do? 
No, actually, it was it was uh, exceeded our expectations in terms of the performance, um, and that is one thing that inspired me later to look at affordable energy positive design that uses less um, less uh, unique forms of construction. So, again, uh, a wood frame construction is very normal throughout Indiana. And everybody knows how to use it. Everybody knows how to bid it. And so um, I have, in my own work, since that time, look for those simple systems that are easy to, for everybody to use, and they're not very exotic. It's not rocket science, and uh, it makes those projects more affordable and uh, easier to pull off. And uh, there are the trade-offs with, with the deforestation. I suppose you're talking about materials that were tree farmed. And then that's set against the cement, the carbon uh, and concrete cement production. Yeah, I think, um, again, if we had done the insulated concrete forms, you'd have a lot of concrete and you'd have a lot of foam. And both of those are intensive in terms of greenhouse gas emissions and embodied carbon. So going with uh, something with low embodied carbon, like uh, a wood product, uh, especially if you contain that, uh, obtain that locally or nearby uh, that has much lower embodied carbon than concrete or steel. So uh, ultimately that was a better choice in regards to embodied carbon as well as to um, constructability and affordability. And I thought I saw something about fly ash. I'm not sure if it was with that building or with a different uh, library. Also in Indiana? Yeah, there was a, a library that uh, we did in central uh, Warwick County. It's the Ohio Township Central Library at the time. I think it's called the Bell Road Branch now, but that was a 36,000 square foot public library where in Warwick County, they were looking at reusing their fly ash. They produce a lot of fly ash in two power plants. And um, that is a hazardous waste product. But it turns out if you embed it in concrete, it becomes fused into the concrete, it becomes benign, and it can replace other parts of the concrete mix and make the concrete uh, as strong or stronger than a typical mix. So what we were looking at there was using the local fly ash because they were contemplating building a, an autoclaved aerated concrete plant that would incorporate local fly ash. Ultimately, that plant was not built, but this was a proof of concept that uh, you could use that material. And autoclaved aerated concrete is foamed concrete. Oddly, it's foamed with a, an aluminum powder that makes it um, blow up like uh, bread dough with yeast in it. And those bubbles uh, make it very porous, lightweight, that gives it an insulation value, but it's still concrete and it's still fire resistant. Um, typically those are eight inch thick walls and it comes in uh, big blocks that you can saw with hand tools or uh, panels. We actually use both big uh, panels, wall panels, and then individual blocks in certain cases. So uh, some of the advantages of that material in that project were one, it was uh, demonstrating local fly ash being used in the mix very quiet, very fire resistant. The material is the 
structure, but it's also the interior finish and the exterior finish at the same time. You put a plaster on the outside and you put a plaster on the inside and you have your wall basically. And um, the fact that it's easy to manipulate and saw and shape meant that we could have a, a uh, sculptural columns and things that would be difficult to do in other ways. But it also made the building about 30% more energy efficient uh, in terms of the shell. We, in that project, used a uh, an elevated floor, a raised floor system, which the floor void became the plenum and you delivered the air conditioning and the heating through the underfloor space. That saved a lot of energy because you don't have ductwork. Um, you don't have any exposed ductwork in the ceiling, so the ceiling could be exposed structure and no ceiling. Um, so that was that was an exploration of how do you do a building that's very energy efficient and very easy to change in the future. Uh, it had long span trusses that made a sawtooth clear story and the tall part of the sawtooth let northern daylight in and the south facing slope was where we put solar panels and solar hot water. And uh, so you had solar on the south slope, you had cool daylight on the north coming in, and that structure allowed the floor to be spanned without any columns so they could rearrange the stacks or whatever was in the middle uh, easily. And since that had a raised floor system, the, any partition walls could easily be moved around in the future. So it was meant to be an easily reconfigurable library space. So multiple innovations on that project. And that was the first project that I used solar on and that inspired the solution at Christie was to uh, scale the solar down to the size of a small library and power the whole thing. Report. I'm Cade Young. And I'm Cynthia Roberts. Are you looking for a way to make a difference on environmental issues? Here at EcoReport, we are currently looking for reporters, engineers, and segment producers. Our goal is to report facts on how we're all affected by global climate disruption and the ongoing assaults on our air, land, and water. We also celebrate ecologists, tree huggers, soil builders, and an assortment of champions who actively protect and restore our natural world, particularly those who are active in South Central Indiana. All levels of experience and all ages are welcome, and we provide the training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. To volunteer for EcoReport, give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at Earth at wfhb.org. And now for some upcoming events. Amorel, 
Mushroom Festival is scheduled at Brown County State Park on Saturday, May 6th from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Enjoy a full day of mushroom activities, including classes on how to find morel mushrooms, off-trail hiking to search for morel mushrooms, mushroom arts and crafts, and much more. And you can join volunteer Steve for a wildflower hike at Spring Mill State Park on Saturday, May 6th from 3 to 4 p.m. You would hike on Trail 5 while exploring all of the wildflowers in bloom. This is a moderate one-mile hike you can meet at the Lakeview Activity Center. A gardening class on healthy soil, healthy garden is taking place on Wednesday, May 10th from 5.30 to 7 p.m. at the Butler Community Park Gardens. Learn about the importance of healthy soils, how to improve your soil, and how to test it. Register at bloomington.in.gov parks. And Brown County Park is hosting a snake meet and greet on Thursday, May 11th from 4 to 4.30 p.m. You can visit the Nature Center for an up-close and personal look at one of Indiana's native snakes and learn about their unique traits, the threats they face, and how you can protect them.